Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. And it might be helpful, so we're just going to make a reference to it, and you might want to look at it later, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And we'll be referencing verses 30 through 35 there in Mark chapter 5. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For in him, or in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on God's Word together. Uh, this morning, uh, or this uh, after the sermon, we're going to sing the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It was written by Charles Wesley, who is the brother of John Wesley. Uh, the, the founders of the Methodist Church. And Charles was a prolific hymn writer, and he wrote many hymns that we still sing, one of which is Hark the Herald's Angels Sing. And interestingly, that was not the original title. Uh, the original title was Hark, How All the Welkin Rings. Hark, How All the Welkin Rings. That just doesn't sound right, does it, to us? Hark how all the welkin rings. Well, welkin is an old English word that went out of use even in the midst of uh, the writing of the song pretty quickly, and it meant the vault of heaven. And so the idea for Charles when he wrote it was not just that angels are singing about Christ, but the whole vault of heaven is opened up singing about Christ. And so he had a much bigger picture in mind. And actually, when it got changed by George Whitfield and others, uh, Wesley became upset and didn't want the song to be changed. Because he, he, he had something much bigger in mind. When Christ comes down, angels just aren't seen. The, the whole vault of heaven, if, if you could even imagine what that would be like, they're all singing about this one great event. And so the title was, Hark How All the Welkin Rings. Now we sing, hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And Wesley in this opening stanza really is just borrowing the message that Paul has used or has said in Colossians in 19 and 20. He's basically taking this same idea and now he's putting it into a song so that we can remember it. Verse 19, Paul writes this, In him, in the man, Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In, in other words, the eternal king was, was born. There was a newborn king. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, for what purpose? 
Why did God put on skin? Answer, reconciliation, verse 20. The the purpose of Christmas is reconciliation between God and sinners. That God and sinners might be reconciled. Okay, so how did God reconcile sinners to himself? Verse 20, by making peace by the blood of his cross. And so that's essentially what Wesley is saying in this opening hymn. And that's, that's really the outline of my sermon. That's the, the three points that I want us to just briefly take a look at this morning. First of all, that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Secondly, when we find that out, we ask ourselves, well, why did God come in the flesh? What's the answer to that question? And of course, it can be answered many ways, but in the text, it's answered by reconciliation. There's something wrong with the relationship between God and man, and somebody has to come put it back together. And that person is the God-man, Jesus. And then you ask, well, where did that happen? Where did that reconciliation occur? And of course, it occurred at the cross. So let's just sort of unpack each one of those points. First, the incarnation that God put on skin. It's really not a question when you read through the New Testament that Jesus is God with skin on. All the New Testament writers make that very clear in their writing. The Apostle Paul couldn't make it more clear than in this text. If you look at chapter 1, verse 15, it says, In Jesus... Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 19. And that he had a body of flesh, verse 22. So Paul's making it perfectly clear that God is invisible. He's a spirit. And so he has come now in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. So when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the visible expression of the invisible God. John His writings say essentially the same thing. And you'll be familiar with the opening passages of his of his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word became flesh, the word that was in the beginning, the word that was with God and the word that also was God which is an unusual way to put it. How can you be with God and then God at the same time? Well, however you put those two things together, that person came down in the person of Jesus Christ. He became flesh. And John repeats himself in his letter, his epistle, 1 John. He says, that which was from the beginning. And then notice how John wants to make sure his readers understand that this just wasn't some sort of spiritual interaction. He says, that which we have heard, we have seen with our own eyes and our hands have touched. So something came that was from the beginning and now we got a chance to interface with it. We didn't just sort of see it or think about it. We touched it. We were with the person, Jesus And then Jesus makes the same claim about himself several places in the New Testament. And you could see them in many different places, but probably the easiest ones, John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus says this about himself. He says, I and the Father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen God. And you know that's exactly what he meant to say because he's got enemies around him when he says that. And the enemies look at Jesus and they say, we're going to stone you for that. 
And Jesus says, well, why are you stoning me? He says, because we're stoning you for blasphemy. No man can claim to be God. And so they picked up stones at that point and tried to stone Jesus. Luke chapter 5, verse 20. You remember, and I made a reference to it in the prayer, there's a paralyzed man. He can't get in to see Jesus and his friends, you know, dig out the roof and lower the man in front of Jesus. And the first thing Jesus does when he looks at the paralyzed man, he says, your sins are forgiven. And then the Pharisees and the teachers and the law who are inside the house, oddly enough, blocking the way to Jesus for this man. They start thinking in their minds, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, well, is it easier to forgive sins or to make this man get up and walk? And the answer to that question is, if you're the creator, it's a lot easier to make the man get up and walk than to forgive sins. And so that you know that I am God, I'm going to tell this man to get up and walk. And then you'll know I actually have the power to forgive sins. So there's no question in the mind of the New Testament writers that Jesus, this person who's come, he thinks he's God. The enemies of Jesus think he's saying that he's God, even though they don't believe it. And all those who wrote about him believed that when they saw Jesus, they actually saw God. Now, no man in his right mind can claim to be God unless you're actually God. Because if you're in your right mind and you claim to be God and you're not God, then what? You're not in your right mind. (laughs) You wouldn't claim to be God and then say, well, actually, I'm not God. You would say, well, that person's a lunatic, that person's a liar, that person isn't actually the Lord. And that's really the argument that C.S. Lewis gives that many of you have heard from his book, Mere Christianity, and he writes this in that book. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing people often say about Jesus, which is, I can accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. I can accept Jesus to be a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. It's pretty common. That's the one thing we must not say, says Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. So the Bible clearly is saying that Jesus is God with skin on. He's come. He's in the flesh. You know, the best a great moral teacher can do is provide instructions for you and how you should get to God. That's the best a teacher can do. Let me show you how you get to God. That's what's known as religion. Christianity is altogether different than religion. The Bible gives clear instructions that you and I can't get to God. And so he's come to us. Very different way of thinking about religion and Christianity. I'll never forget when I was in an airplane many years ago. I was sitting next to a lady who was a Hindu. 
and she was on her way to India. So we had a, we were just short, sharing a short flight together, and I could tell she was uh, from India, and we'd had a bit of a conversation, and she had said she was a Hindu, and she was going back to see some relatives in India. And I said, well, now tell me, as a Hindu, do you believe in heaven? Oh, yeah, we believe in heaven. Okay, so how do you get there? I'm, I'm guessing if you believe in heaven, you're interested in getting to heaven. How do you get to heaven? And she said something like this. Well, you have to be very holy, and you have to do something very difficult. And I said, okay, so what, what would be something that would be very difficult? And she said, well, I know a man who has uh, just stood on one leg his whole life, even though he has two good legs. And I, said, I said, so the God who made you with two good legs would want you just to stand on one well, that was very difficult, so I think he's going to get in. What else? There's a man who's lived, who lived in the woods, and he never laid down. He stood, he walked around, he sat down, but he never laid down. So the God who made you to need sleep wouldn't want you to lay down. Yeah, but it, he did something very difficult. I said, well, are you going to get to heaven? No, I'm not doing anything very difficult. Christianity is the exact opposite of that kind of thinking. And that's not just a Hindu way of thinking. That's a pervasive way of thinking that the people that get in are holy and have done something very difficult. And Christianity says that in order to get into heaven, you must believe that Jesus is holy and he has done something very difficult. You see, that's the the total opposite of what she was thinking. I was thinking, yes, in order for me, I believe in heaven, but in order for me to get in, I've got to believe that someone is holy and that he has done something difficult for me to get in. That's the difference between religion and Christianity. That's why it's important that God has come in the flesh. So why did God put flesh on? What's the purpose of Christmas? The answer is so God and sinners could be reconciled. That's the whole purpose of Christmas, that God and sinners could be reconciled. Now, that's not going to be your standard holiday film fare. When you turn on the Hallmark Channel or any of these other channels and you get sort of the, you know, one Christmas movie after another, they generally have a certain kind of theme. And that is that what needs to happen in the end of this Christmas movie in order for the, the Christmas spirit to sort of come together is that people need to get together. That people somehow need to be, get reconciled. They're, that man and man need to somehow make something happen and then the Christmas spirit takes off. I don't know if you watch the movie It's a Wonderful Life. You should. It's awesome. We watch it at our house every year. We know all the lines and we say lines back to each other all year. It's really great. And so you remember poor George Bailey. He's got a stupid uncle. I don't even know why they kept this guy around, but the uncle loses a lot of money and George Bailey thinks it's better for him to die than to live. And you have this whole great show, but how is it that they take care of the evil old man? Remember, Mr. Potter. How is it that they get rid of evil old man Potter in the end? How is it they do that? Everyone in the town comes together and they all give money and they finally sort of defeat old man Potter. 
And then they all stand in George Bailey's house and they all sing together. And that's sort of like the Christmas spirit. See, these people came together. They were somehow reconciled and they were able to defeat something that was evil. What about this other Christmas classic, the movie Elf? It really is a classic. You should watch it. And I, I just love when, what's, what's his name? Buddy, right? Buddy, and he throws the snowballs. I think that's the funniest part. But there's lots of, or when the, the, the store manager says, Santa's coming, remember? And Buddy's like, Santa's coming. I know Santa. Well, I won't give away the movie. But in the end, right? In the end, there's a problem. Remember? What's the problem? Santa's sleigh. It can't get off the ground. It can't get up and running. And so what has to happen in order to get the sleigh up in the sky? What do they have to do? They have to come together. And they all have to sing. They all sing in Central Park. And as men, men and women, as we come together as one, as we have this, we are the world moment. We are the children. So let's start giving. I mean, if we can have that kind of moment then that's the Christmas spirit. And that's not what Christmas is about. The biggest problem with humanity is the problem between humans and God, not between humans and humans. All the human and human problems are a consequence that there's something broken between the creator and the creature. And so the real story of Christmas is that we need to get God and man together, not that we need to get men and men or women and men together. We need to get God and and man reconciled. And so Paul illustrates this separation from God in verse 21 and 22 by using some Old Testament language. We might not see it right away, but he's picking up on these illustrations or these images from the Old Testament. He says we're alienated from God. You're you're an alien to God. It literally means we're the property of another. You're, You're underneath somebody else's headship. You're in someone else's family. You're an alien from God. That's the problem. And it says we're hostile to God in our minds and our actions. We just don't want to do what God wants us to do. We want God to do what we want to do. That's the main problem in the human heart. Yes, I believe in God. And yes, I want him to do what I want him to do. Nobody has a problem with a God like that. The problem we have is when God says, no, you got to do what I want you to do. Oh, I don't like that. I don't want to come and adore on bended knee. And that's the problem. We're hostile to God in our actions. We're hostile to God in our mind. And therefore, we're in no condition. We're not holy. We're not blameless. We're not above reproach. And so we're in no condition to stand before God. If you were to go back and read through Leviticus, it's really um, a challenging book to read through, but it's really very repetitive It's chapter after chapter of basically the clean laws. In the Old Testament, how would you come into the temple? How could you stand before God? And then so God gives Moses all these instructions and says, okay, now Moses, these people are going to come in and have an intersection with me in any meaningful way. They've got to make sure they're clean. 
And so you've got 20-some chapters in Leviticus that are just detailing one thing after another. It's amazing how, how comprehensive the details are in the clean laws. You couldn't be dirty, so there were ritual washings. Your, your clothes had to be made of certain fabric. You, your skin couldn't have any kind of disease. You couldn't have any discharge of blood. You couldn't have any rashes. You couldn't have, have recently given birth. You couldn't come into contact recently with any unclean animal. You couldn't have con- come in contact with anything that's been dead. You couldn't con- come in contact with people who had been in contact with any of those, pe- those things. And you get to the end and you say, well, who can come? I mean, even if I kept myself clean, I might touch or be or sit down after somebody who's unclean. Now I've gotten unclean. And in the Old Testament, it's always a danger when the unholy comes into contact with the holy. Remember at Mount Sinai, God has to instruct Moses, hey, don't make sure that people, nobody touches the mountain. Because when I'm on the mountain, if they come and touch it, gone. There were special instructions, remember, how you would carry the Ark of the Covenant? And the people, when the Ark was returning in 2 Samuel, they didn't carry it the right way. It was just on a cart with an ox. And the ox ox stumbled, and the Ark began to slip, and a man named Uzzah stepped out and grabbed the Ark to stable the Ark. And what happened to him? He died. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, one day after a year, after all this purification, he went in, he had a rope tied around his waist. Because if somehow he wasn't clean enough and he died, nobody wanted to go in and get him. So they tied a rope and said, well, we're not going to go in and, and, and intersect God there. We're going to pull this guy out. See, every time it's a problem if the unholy gets in contact with that which is holy. And when you read these kinds of stories, I think it's easy to get confused and say, now what's the purpose of all this? And the answer is the focus on our physically being unclean was God's way of highlighting a much greater problem, and that is that we're all spiritually unclean. We're all separated. We're all alienated from God. And it's really impossible for you to get clean enough to get in front of God. Even if you could just for a few moments, as soon as you leave, you're going to come in contact with something that's not holy and you're going to have to go back through it again. So we need somebody. The Old Testament shouts the need for someone to stand in between us and God. It can't be an animal. It has to be somebody who can stand with me and before God. And who is that person? Jesus. The God-man. The one who can stand with me and also stand before God. First Timothy 2, Paul writes this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So Jesus is God with skin on. Jesus is the God-man. He's the one uniquely able to stand between God and sinners. And finally, so how does Jesus reconcile God and man? Answer, verse 20. Jesus made peace between God and man by his blood on the cross. Making peace. Jesus made peace. 
through his blood on the cross. The Bible states very clearly that everyone knows deep down they're, no in, they're in no condition to stand before holy God. They know enough about themselves. They know enough about what they think. They know enough about what they've done that if there is a God and I stood before him, I just couldn't stand. We know we need someone to stand in between this collision of our hostility and God's holiness. We need somebody to stand in between my wrongs and God's wrath that are coming together like speeding trains. And we need somebody who can stand there and both be for me and also be before God. And that person is Christ. I don't know if you've read anything recently about this uh, little dust-up concerning the song, In Christ Alone. We sing it here occasionally. There's a line in the song that says, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And a denomination was putting together a new hymnal, and they wanted to include that song in their hymnal because it's well-known and people like to sing it. But they wanted to remove the phrase, the wrath of God. And so they called the writers of the song and said, hey, can we take that out and substitute something in else in? And the songwriter said no. And so the committee decided not to include the song in the hymnal. The Bible says there's only one way to remove the wrath of God, and that's through the blood of Jesus. That's the only way the wrath of God gets removed. It's that picture in the Old Testament that's the ark. That's where God sits. And when the priest comes in, what's in the ark? Do you remember what's in the ark? The, the, the commandments, the tablets. This is the way you're supposed to live. And man, it represented by the priest, he's standing there and he knows God's going to come sit down on the commandments. And he's going to say, I'm looking at these commandments and I'm going to judge you. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever thought of a woman or a man in any appropriate way? Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Have you ever called somebody a fool? See, we know we can't stand there, but God's coming to sit down and something needs to get in between God sitting there and man. And what is it? It's blood. And the priest comes in and sprinkles the blood saying, God, when you come down, instead of wrath, what I would like is mercy. And what gets in between God's wrath and our wrongs is Jesus, the God man. His blood on the cross absorbs God's wrath. Instead of getting wrath, we get grace. That's how God and sinners are reconciled. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Isaiah 53.4, we considered him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted by God. Yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The the flow of Jesus' blood on the cross stops the hemorrhaging of our own soul. 
Mark chapter 5, a somewhat familiar story. Remember, Jesus is in the crowd, and he's got a crowd of people, and this rich man named Jairus, who's got a sick child, comes up to him and says, hey, can you do something for my daughter? And Jesus is walking towards Jairus' house, and the crowd begins to come around because Jesus, this person who's calling himself the Christ, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to go do something. He's been doing these miraculous things, and this sounds like another time. And so sort of a train, a parade starts coming up. And during this parade through this town, there's a woman there who's been bleeding for 12 years. And she's heard about Jesus. And she said, well, some guy has showed up saying he's the Holy One. He's the God-man. He's the Messiah. And maybe in the midst of this crowd, if I could come up and touch him, I would be healed from this flow of blood. But I can't just come up face to face and touch him. Why? I'm unclean. I'm not prepared to stand in front of God. I've just got to come up and just maybe just touch like a tassel. Just touch the hem of his garment. And hopefully at that point I can become clean. And he won't know anything. And so she devises her plan and the crowd grows thick and she skinnies herself up into the crowd and she reaches out and touches Jesus' garment and immediately she's healed. Her blood flow stops. Who else stops? Jesus. Hey, who touched me? His disciples are going... Uh, could have been in, could have been me. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people around here, Jesus. Let's keep on moving. Got a parade. Let's go. Daughter's sick. Jarius is like, come on. Who? T- I mean, who touched me? I did. Let's go. And he stops and he keeps looking. Uh oh, for the woman. He's not going to stop until he finds me. The woman understands that. And so she comes back to Jesus. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Mark five thirty three. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, that she, the unclean, had touched the clean, she, the one who had been bleeding, touched the holy one, came with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Because when the unholy comes unprepared into the presence of God, someone dies. When the unholy comes into the presence of God unprepared, someone dies. And I could just imagine this poor woman sort of breathlessly explaining her story. Because she knows when she gets to the end, it's probably not going to be good. So she's telling her whole story. When I was born, and when I was one, I mean, you can imagine this old woman, because she knows when she gets, and then I touched you and I was healed, Jesus, the Holy One, is now going to be looking at her and saying, you're, you're unholy, you're unprepared to touch someone like me. And she's thinking, this is it. And Jesus looks at her when she's finally finished with her last statement, and what does he say? It's incredible. First word, daughter, you're home. You're not an alien anymore. I don't know if she heard anything else Jesus had to say. 
Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. I don't know if somebody said, hey, did you hear that last part? I think she just probably just heard, daughter. I haven't been in the temple of the Lord for at least 12 years. And here, this God man, he looks at me and I wasn't prepared. I came unholy and touched the holy and I didn't die. He called me daughter instead. He said, go in peace. Because this time when the unholy touches the holy, it's the holy one who's going to die. Because when her flow of blood stopped, his began. So how can you come before a holy God? How can you stand before a holy God? If a God-man comes and he takes on the wrath of God and he gives you all of his righteousness, it's as if... When God looks at you, he looks at the life that Jesus led. And he says, come, you're my son, you're my daughter. Hark, hark, listen carefully. This is what the angels are singing. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace, born that man no more shall die.